This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion, addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at standupwithatruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Hello, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, we, I don't have that list in front of me that I promised yesterday, but we will get that next week. I said, uh, we just found out that um, we have listeners, of course, from across the country and different, uh, you know, Canada, New, uh, in Mexico, the UK. But we, we found out that we have donors in 41 different states. That's, that was news to me. And that was more than I expected. And we're going to get that list uh, of states hopefully next week. But um, when we uh, get our guest on, Mike Gendron, we're going to be talking about uh, several topics today. The, there's a major Southern Baptist church that's um, host of an ecumenical conference, and that happens to have some Roman Catholic speakers. We're also going to talk about Pope Francis saying proselytizing is something pagan. It's not Christian. So what is is that? Is he talking about evangelism? What is he talking about? Not Christian or, or it's pagan. And then we're going to talk about the deception of a man named Padre Pio, which we you may have heard about, but don't know who he is and what the significance is in relation to some very famous people today, some very famous Catholics. But first, I want to start off with Galatians chapter one six. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. A heavy scriptures today because it's a heavy topic that we're going to open up and uh, I'm going to hand it over to Mary to open us in prayer. Good morning, Lord. We just uh, love you today and we desire to love you with our heart and our mind and our soul we are ever reliant on you for so many things, including our very breath, Lord. So we come before you um, just desiring to worship you and praise you today and everything that we do. I pray that the conversation this morning uh, would be seasoned with uh, grace uh, and salt, uh, that your Holy Spirit would walk among us. And the things that are said today, you would plant deep, those things that are of you, those things that may not be of you, Lord, that they would uh, uh, just not be in our minds or hearts today. But, Lord, we want to honor you with our words. And we pray for our guests this morning, um, for Mike and his family and and all the needs represented there, spoken and unspoken, that you would bless his ministry, Lord, protect him from the enemy, uh, just uh, help him to finish well, Lord, as we all desire to do. Uh, as we stand before you this morning, completely dependent on you. So thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing, what you have done through this ministry, through Mike's ministry. Um, pray you just have your hand of blessing, and again, that you'd walk among us today uh, and give us your wisdom and strength. Thank you, Jesus, yes, in your Lord. name. Amen. Amen. So, friends, we're blessed to have Mike Gendron back with us, Proclaiming the Gospel Ministries. You can get to the website by going Proclaiming thegospel.org. He's an evangelist and author. A couple of his books, Contending for the Gospel and Preparing for Eternity. Uh, For those of you that are maybe new listeners to the podcast and aren't familiar with his ministry, Mike was a devout Roman Catholic for over 30 years. 
But that all changed in uh, the early 80s while attending an evangelical seminar. And he realized that the Bible is the supreme authority for knowing truth. Mike, it's a blessing to have you back. Welcome, brother. Well, it's always a blessing for me to be on your show because we all need to be standing for the truth. Yes, amen. Amen. So let's jump right into a couple of the topics I mentioned, uh, places we're going to go today. And let's start with ecumenical movements. (laughs) Ecumenism. Boy, easy for me to say. Well, there's an article that caught my eye. And, you know, is nothing sacred anymore? Even the Southern Baptists, there are branches of the Southern Baptists that are compromising. Now, Mike, some might not see this as a compromise, but the, there's a First Baptist Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Southern Baptist Congregation. They hosted an ecumenical conference with Roman Catholics last month. The theme of the conference was to bury the distinctions between biblical Christianity and false churches, particularly the Roman Catholic Church and the NAR, New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, share your thoughts and concerns about this. Well, we are called to be sanctified by the truth, and we know from the scripture that you read opening the show that there is only one gospel, and that any other gospel is not the gospel. In fact, anyone that preaches it is to be accursed. And so we need to contend for the gospel. What's at stake is the glory and honor of our Lord Jesus Christ and the sanctity of His Church, as well as the eternal destinies of those who are being deceived by another gospel. And so we have these evangelical churches. I think the Southern Baptist denomination was the last one to begin drifting into apostasy Mm. of all the major denominations, but we see it going ahead full steam now, hosting this conference. And we can never have unity with Roman Catholics because we're divided on so many issues. But what the ecumenical movement tries to do is to suppress doctrinal truth for the sake of unity. And... We've talked a lot about the differences between Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity, but the major difference is the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. Those were the cries of the Reformers because the Roman Catholic Church had distorted the gospel. And so now we see these Southern Baptists reversing the Reformation, or at least attempting to, basically implying that the Reformation was a mistake and that the Reformers died for theological pettiness. And I think Rick Warren is one of the leading Southern Baptists, and Mm. he has been very ecumenical from the beginning. Yes. In fact, he went to visit the Pope, and he actually called Pope Francis our Pope, and he has pushed the Jesuit agenda for religious unity. So it's really not surprising to see this church in Florida also jump on the ecumenical bandwagon. But it is quite disturbing for all those who are contending earnestly for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Well, and Rick Warren hosted an Alpha Conference back in 2014 mm. uh, at the Royal Albert Hall, uh, Holy Trinity Church in Brompton, which is an Anglican church. And this Alpha Conference is the Alpha Course, which was written from a Church of England perspective and um, uh, taught by a man who brought us the holy laughter in Brownsville Revival. And I hope your appetite is wet for that because we're going to do a whole show on this. God willing, February yeah, 24. Fe- yeah, because there's yeah. so much more here about uh, the evangelical road to apostasy than I think people realize. Yeah, you're so right. And Rick Warren, 
uh, you know, in his purpose-driven book, he also presented a false and fatal gospel. He left out three most important parts of the gospel. He left out the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wow. He left out the call to repent. Mm. And he also left out the righteousness of God. We see that in Romans one seventeen that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And so many people believe they can get to heaven on their own goodness, their own good works, and they don't know the righteousness that God's righteousness requires. And so for Rick Warren to leave those three important parts of the gospel out and then to lead his readers into a sinner's prayer, we can only wonder how many false converts were produced by this Southern Baptist pastor. Mm. And unfortunately, we see this happening in more and more places throughout the Southern Baptist Convention. Yes, we do. I just want to read a little bit from this article um, and like I said, we will talk more about the Alpha course. You don't hear much about it anymore, but it's still around. Um, the article says, now that Hillsong Church, who I guess apparently hosted some conferences, is practically dead from its endless sex scandals among its leadership, Alpha seems to have found a new home, the Southern Baptist Convention. However, Alpha is horribly a horribly dangerous ecumenical movement that minimizes the gospel in favor of a watered-down mere Christianity type of religious movement that denies many of the essential tenets of the faith. And it says, in fact, this year's conference not only hosted several Roman Catholic speakers, but a number of women pastors. And apparently, Mike, gender, and these are all in contradiction to the Southern Baptist Convention statement uh, of faith. Can you uh, help us clarify this? (laughs) Well, it is. Uh, Supposedly... The Southern Baptists believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and unfortunately, they're not earnestly contending for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Instead, they're compromising by joining hands with unbelievers. And, you know, Paul made it very clear in 2 Corinthians six fourteen to 18 that we have nothing in common with unbelievers, that we should not be unequally yoked with them in spiritual enterprises. But this whole ecumenical movement is an attempt to join hands with unbelievers, whether it be Catholics or Orthodox or Anglicans, in order to fight the social and moral wars. But God doesn't need us joining hands with unbelievers to do that. He can accomplish it with faithful people, his remnant, that are sanctified by the truth. Mm -hmm. So, Mike, I want to follow up on something, because there are maybe some of our listeners, and I would think it's a minority, but we do have some... uh, Catholic listeners, uh, born-again Christian Catholic, some are still going to the Roman Catholic Church, some have left, um, and I think you just put them in uh, the category of unbelievers. So could you please clarify that, who uh, someone might be offended out there going, wait a minute, I'm a believer. Well, sure. The Roman Catholic Church submits to a different authority than born-again Christians. We have one authority. It is the inspired and errant authoritative Word of God, and we are to test every man's teaching with that authority. But the Roman Catholic Church has three equal authorities. They say Scripture is one, also their sacred tradition, and then the teaching magisterium of the Church made up of all the bishops. And so, in actual practice, the bishops sit above Scripture and tradition, and they do a masterful job of twisting Scripture so that it conforms to their ungodly tradition. 
so in a sense, the true authority in the Catholic Church is the magisterium of the Church. Mm. And when they speak with one voice, they are said to be infallible. So whenever you have a different authority, it always leads to a different Jesus, and the Catholics worship and trust a different Jesus. And he is unable to save Catholics completely and forever. He must be called back down from heaven by the priest to be transubstantiated into a wafer and then offered again on an altar. So the work of redemption continues on a Catholic altar that Jesus finished on the cross. And so Catholics worship the Eucharist as the true Christ because the Church teaches that it is the physical body and blood, soul, and divinity contained in the Eucharist. And so whenever you have another Jesus, it always leads to another gospel. Yes. And since the Catholic Jesus is not sufficient to save Catholics completely and forever, <clears throat> they need another gospel to instruct them what they must do. And so they've added to the gospel of grace with their sacraments and their good works and keeping the law and the sacrifice of the Mass. So if there are Catholics listening, I would just encourage them to trust the inspired Word of God, not Amen. the uninspired words of your bishops. Oh, Amen. Amen. And, of course, the doctrines, the Catholic Catechism, um, which teaches things that even, even people, well-meaning Catholics, are divided over. Um, I want to mention something, Mike. There, there's a major Christian festival here in Wisconsin, and there are probably some across the country who maybe in their well-meaning attempt to draw in people of all faiths or religions or unbelievers to their music event where they have Christian bands come in, uh, they also hold a Catholic Mass. Now, mm -hmm. th this Baptist church and this convention is no different. They partnered with a neighboring Roman Catholic church, to hold a Catholic Mass during the conference. And again, we're talking about the Southern Baptist Church here, but we have uh, a organization right here in our neck of the woods that does the same thing every year. Um, what's wrong with that? Are, are they not just trying to be all things to all people? Well, the sacrifice of the Mass is a blasphemous presentation of Christ on an altar, and again, as I shared another Jesus, we know that Jesus remains in heaven until all of his enemies have been made his footstool. The Bible tells us when he's going to return to the earth. It's after the tribulation. The Bible says how he's going to return, and that's in a body the same way he left. The Bible tells us where he's going to return, and that's to the Mount of Olives. And every eye will see him. There'll be no doubt that Jesus has returned to the earth. And so the Catholic Mass is a blasphemous representation of a Eucharistic Christ on an altar, and it is said to be a propitiatory sacrifice and that the wrath of God is turned away from all those gathered around the altar, and their sins are forgiven from the previous week. Hmm. The reason Catholics don't have the assurance of eternal life is because the work of redemption continues every week, and they need the Mass in order to turn away the wrath of God for the sins they committed. So to mix that with evangelicalism is truly going against Scripture. It's going against the purity and exclusivity of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amen. Uh, as I, 
you know, I, we shared a little bit about our backgrounds in the in before the program. Oh, you and, need to uh, mention that that was before we got on the air. Before we got on the air, we talked about. Uh, I, I had twelve years of Catholic school. I was. I was. Uh, What's your name? How'd you get your name? Yeah, Mary. <laughs> yeah, that's how I got my name. All right. And uh, so I was very devout. I mean, um, the month of May is the month of Mary. I had altars in my room to Mary with her favorite flower. I mean, the, this was very, very profound part of my life. And then after I got saved, and I was. I finally understood the history of the papacy, the history, and so many things came to light. I had a I had a booklet, a Keith Green booklet called the Catholic Chronicles. <laughs> I took it home to my family, thinking, "Well, they're going to be so happy to learn all this." Well, guess what? Oh, that started the end Yikes. of a lot of good relationships with my family. And uh, all that to say, I found that, and I think this kind of dovetails with what you were saying, is the low view of Scripture. In Catholicism, is truly the problem because yeah. unless you can point them to what you know God hath said in the Scripture to correct and uh, bring new life, if they're going to throw up a brick wall in your face every time you say that it is the inspired Word of God, yeah. then there's nowhere to go. Mm. There's no you cannot continue the conversation because that one thing that would correct and bring them to the knowledge of the truth just is is. You know, they've officially shut it down, and an this issue. happened, right, this happened mm. to me and my family for many, many, many years. Um, I, I'd like to ask you then, Mike, too, about, because you have an article, Why Should We Believe the Bible? Yes. Uh, in, in the context of the low view of Scripture that Catholics do have, what? why is this important? Well, before I go there, I just would like to remind your audience that the devil the God of this world has blinded the minds mm. of unbelievers mm-hmm. so they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ. And one of his most powerful tools is religi- religious pride mm. and religious mm. indoctrination. Mm-hmm. And so when we share mm. the Word of God with Catholics who are so proud of their religion, the Word of God bounces off their mm. religious indoctrination. And so this article that I wrote on why we should believe the Bible is something that I hope many Catholics would consider. The Bible has a divine origin. The human yes. authors spoke from God Amen. as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We see that in Second Timothy 3.16. And no other religious book makes that claim. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons a lot of people pick up the Bible for the first time is they're told that it predicts future events. And we all want to know what the future holds, and so we began reading the Bible. And when the Bible was written, 30% of it predicted future events concerning the Messiah and Israel and other nations. And currently, we know that 2,000 of the 2,500 prophecies have been fulfilled with precise accuracy. Yes. And so this is clear evidence that the Bible was inspired by a sovereign God who controls all things, and knows the end from the beginning. I was witnessing to a Muslim one time, and I just asked them, I said, do you know why the Koran doesn't predict future events? And they said no. And I said, well, I'm going to say something not to offend you, but the reason is because the God of the Koran doesn't know the future because he doesn't control all things. He is not sovereign. And so if he were to make one prophecy and it was not true, then the whole Koran Mm -hmm. would be thrown away as... Mm -hmm unreliable. And so we can trust the Bible. We can trust it because it's inspired by a sovereign Lord that controls all things. Amen. I love some of the points. I would love for you to continue, Mike, because we've got 10 minutes left in this segment. And I think it's important before we talk about what the Pope thinks about the gospel and evangelism or 
proselytizing, and we talk about Padre Pio in the next segment. Let's set up more of a foundation of, as you wrote, why we should believe the Bible. Oh, you, you talk about its unity and harmony. You talk about its reliability of transmission. Let's just sure. talk about transmission. You think, wow, you, th- you would think the more something gets copied. Isn't that like the telephone game where you say something, you repeat it to someone else, you go around the room, and it ends up being something completely <laughs> different? Talk about the reliability of transmission of the manuscripts. Yeah, I really love this part of it because God in his providence had many of the scrolls hidden in a cave near the Dead Sea for nearly 2,000 years. And so when they were discovered in 1948, we were able to look at the manuscripts from 2,000 years ago and to see how they nearly perfectly match the copies that we have today. Amazing. And so I think this was purposeful of God, mm-hmm. and I don't think the date that they were discovered was anything more than a coincidence, because obviously in 1948, that's when the prophetic time, time clock started, yes. when Israel was uh, renamed a sovereign nation. And so I think the timing of those discoveries was really important. It's unity and harmony. I I think this is amazing, too. God commissioned 40 different authors from all walks of life, from kings to fishermen, and they were writing the scriptures over a 1,500-year period. They were on three different continents, and they put together the 66 books of the Bible. All of them are united in harmony to reveal a complex drama about God's redemption of man through the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and we know that if we were to walk down on any street corner in America, and if we were to ask 40 different people to walk by, what is the message of the Bible, you would probably get 40 different answers. <laughs> but here you have these people over a 1,500-year period, mm-hmm. all in perfect harmony on man's redemption. Mm-hmm. And most of these people did not communicate with one another. They were they lived in different centuries, on different right. continents, as you said. Right. right, and all these things put together, uh, when someone says to me, which is I hear often when I try to share with a Catholic, is, well, it was written by men. I said, okay, let's talk about that. In us dwells no good thing, Romans 7. No one does good, not one, Psalm 14. All fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. Do you think humans, with their incredible hubris and egos would write a book that says that is so indicting of who they are mm-hmm. uh, if humans wrote a book there it would be there would be no hell there would be no judgment the lord would not return there would be no i mean look at the book of revelation human there's no way humans could write that so it, it's really helpful to actually go through scriptures with catholics and have them sit down and say okay what what about this was written by man and no one has ever given me a reasonable answer to that well, and that leads to one of the other reasons. The Bible is brutally honest mm-hmm. about its heroes. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Right. I mean, think about it. The Bible reveals Moses, the lawgiver, was a murderer. David, Israel's most beloved king, was an adulterer. Mm-hmm. And then he conspired to have the husband of the wife killed. And then Paul was the worst of sinners, according to Paul. And Peter was a betrayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. So... For the Bible to reveal its heroes in such a negative way shows that it clearly was the inspired Word of God. Amen. 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 And let's just remind people when they say, and you hear that a lot, oh, it was just written by men. And the, the implication is men are imperfect. Perhaps they think men are sinful. But usually it means their men are just you know a bunch of bunglers. How could they put something together mm-hmm. so divine? But let's go over to Second Peter chapter 1 real quick, and I'll let you respond, Mike Gendron. Verse 19 says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure 
to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Verse 20, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Mike, I think we just released God out from that box, right? <laughs> you sure did. What a powerful verse that is, and we all need to be ready to share that. And, of course, another verse that's so important, too, is Acts seventeen eleven, when Paul was mm. preaching in the synagogues of Berea. Yes. He noticed as he was preaching that his listeners were searching the Scriptures to test the veracity of an apostle's mm. teaching, an apostle who wrote over half the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So this is something that Paul did not get upset about. He commended them. Mm -hmm. And so it's a good principle for all of us to follow. If an apostle came under the scrutiny of Scripture to test its veracity, then every teacher should come under the same script scrutiny. Amen. Mike, we've got just a few minutes left before we need to take, take our first break. Let's talk a little bit about the attacks and the scrutiny which you put it under the label of the Bible's indestructibility. I mean, it's been attacked from the beginning. They've tried to take them all, burn them all. Uh, they, they killed anyone who would share the message. And look, it's still the number one bestseller today. And it's still truth, right? You can't just get rid of this inspired Word of God, right? It's been under so much scrutiny down through the years. Kings have uh, tried to destroy it. Thousands of skeptics have um, pr tried to prove it was wrong. In fact, one of the greatest skeptics was Josh McDowell. And after studying the Bible for six years, he came away as one of the world's leading apologists, knowing that the more you look at the Scriptures, the more you walk away saying, this has got to be the inspired Word of God. So yes, the closer scrutiny the Bible receives, the stronger it gets down through the years. Mm. And that's what we found. And it's just, it's just, it's, I, I think we have so much to stand on. I mean, we don't have enough time to go into everything. I think of the gospel that Paul calls the gospel in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We very rarely hear, well, we don't hear enough about eyewitness testimony. What's the most important thing in a court of law? Eyewitnesses. And here we, Paul names names and he talks about who Jesus appeared to. And then he, at one point, more than 500 at the same time. And we know there's no such thing as a mass uh, hallucination, right? So all these people saw the living, resurrected Christ. These were eyewitnesses. That's another reason, Mike Gendron, that this, this true story grew and spread, because people saw it with their own eyes. And it, we forget how fascinating that is. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, yes, there were so many eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And as Paul said, without the resurrection, our faith is in vain. But mm. we we actually had witnesses to see that yep. Christ was victorious over death, over sin, yes. and over the devil. Satan really thought he had won the battle, but three days later, the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why we have such a glorious gospel to proclaim, because... In the resurrection of Christ, we show that God's wrath was satisfied, that we are justified, that we are declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. 
and his resurrection. Mm-hmm. Amen. Another great thing about the scriptures is um, science. You know, scientists say, well, you know, the Bible, there's nothing scientific in there. Uh-huh. We have to remake, we have to reinvent everything. Well, the Bible talks about, in Job especially, um, you know, he hangs the earth on nothing. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. Uh, that wasn't believed then. People thought that the earth was on the back of a huge turtle or something like that. The water cycle is in Job 26. Gravity is in Job. Uh, the earth's The earth's core, Job 28. Uh, as fire below. I mean, there are things in there that that humans did not know or acknowledge at the time. Uh, there's really nothing in the scriptures that that men could say. Well, we know more. We know more than God does. Yeah. You know, um, which God clearly says in Job is not true. <laughs> hey, Mike, take two minutes before we break and talk about its scientific accuracy. Well, sure. The amazing thing is that modern technology continues to unfold the mysteries of the universe that were recorded in the Bible thousands of years mm-hmm. before people yes. had these amazing instruments. That's and right. So the point is here that the Bible has always proved science to be correct, mm-hmm. but science has never disproved the Bible. Ooh, and so good. authority comes from the inspired Word of God, and He's the one that created the universe. He's also the one that inspired the writers to pin these amazing scientific discoveries down before they had any way of knowing that the universe was created so spectacularly. Mm. Well, and God gets the final answer on that in Job 38. <laughs> he says, tell me if you know so much, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Like exactly. smart, right. smarty pants. Yeah. <laughs> All right, our guest today is Mike Gendron, and you can get some great Bible tracks, by the way, uh, just in general, some great evangelical Bible tracks. Plus, you can get several of them that are directed at Roman Catholics that have great information comparing Scripture versus tradition, uh, comparing like Rome versus the Bible. Another one is, Which Jesus Do You Trust? There's some great tracks at ProclaimingTheGospel.org, Mike Gendron's website. When we come back, we're going to talk about Pope Francis recently saying proselytizing is something pagan. It's not Christian. What does he mean by that? And the deception of a man named Padre Pio. That's next on Stand Up For The Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Mike Jenner is our guest today. You can sign up for his email newsletter at uh, ProclaimingTheGospel.org. Um, Mike, we there's an article over at Israel365news.com, and I want you to help us understand what the Pope is saying. Um, he said, this was, I, I believe, Wednesday. Um, of course, he's the head of the church, and what he says goes, and that, that and tradition. It's not the Bible. It's not the inspired Word of God. It's the Pope. It's tradition. It's the catechism. Uh, so he addressed crowds that were gathering there for the general audience, and uh, he said to evangelize is not to proselytize. Um, he said to, to proselytize is something pagan. It is neither religious nor evangelical. And apparently that, uh, you know, well, let me just go further and let you respond, Mike. Quoting the late Pope Benedict, who died uh, just December 31st, uh, Pope Francis said, The church does not proselytize, but rather she grows by attraction to the beauty of God's love. So share with us, what, what is he saying that proselytizing is not Christian, it's, it's pagan? Yeah, well, 
I'm not surprised anymore about what the Pope says. I mean, it's just really amazing when you look down through his eight years yeah. of being the head of the church. He's gone so far as to say atheists will go to heaven as long as they're sincere and there is no hell. And he is a universalist. He believes mm-hmm. everyone will be in heaven. And mm-hmm. so this really runs right along with what he said to proselytize as something pagan, because if everybody's going to heaven, why would you want to proselytize? And it's really interesting, too, because, you know, the Evangelical and Catholics Together movement actually started in South America because the Roman Catholic Church was losing a lot of its people to Catholics that were being evangelized by Protestants. Mm. And so they put an end to that by signing a unity accord so that there would not be any more proselytizing. So this has got a long history for the Pope to come out and say it's a pagan practice but I believe that anyone who still believes that the Pope is um, the true head of the Christian Church, they really need to investigate what he said. The Lord Jesus gave us the Great Commission, and we are to go and make disciples, teaching them to observe everything Christ has commanded. So for the Pope to say this is a um, pagan yeah practice. I mean, he's he's obviously implying that Jesus was a pagan, and he was encouraging people to go out and and follow him by doing pagan practices, and this is the furthest thing from the truth. Mm -hmm. I don't know when Catholics are going to wake up and recognize this is the most influential false prophet Mm -hmm. in the world today. Mm -hmm. He definitely has the spirit of Antichrist. He goes against Christ and his word Mm -hmm. in so many different ways, and and I'm not saying this to be offensive to Catholics, but they really need to consider that this man is not infallible. Mm-hmm. He does err when it comes to speaking about faith and morals, and he cannot be trusted. We need to trust the inspired Word of God over the uninspired words of men. Mm-hmm. Mike, uh, not too long ago, I think it might have been just uh, early this year, the previous Pope, I think it was Benedict, passed away, and he was replaced by this current Pope, mm-hmm. Uh, who is a Marxist, there's no question about that, ideologically. Um, and, and never in history has a pope actually been replaced without passing away, and he was uh, still alive for 10 years mm. while this pope, uh, Pope Francis, has been in office. Why Do you think possibly it has to do with the fact that uh, Benedict was not as much of a Marxist and couldn't speak to these kind of things? Or do you have any thought at all on why that was a first in the Catholic Church? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Um, That was one of the considerations that you just suggested. But the other is that Pope Benedict was a doctrinal guru. In fact, he wrote the Catechism of the Catholic Church in 1994, which is the supreme authority for Roman Catholics today. It builds on all the previous canons. And so he is a theological guru. He was not pastoral. But now you've got Pope Francis, who doesn't know a thing about theology, <laughs> yep, but he's very sure. pastoral. Everybody says he's such a humble man, even though he's stolen the titles given to the triune God, Holy Father, head of the church, and vicar of Christ. How can they say he's humble when he wears those titles? But in any event, I think um, the Catholic Church needed more of a pastoral figure. And you're right about the Marxist. He's a globalist. He's pushed the ecumenical agenda. Yep 
forward a more mm-hmm. rapid rate than any of the previous popes. He's not only building a global religion by this ecumenical movement, but he's also building a global economy and a global government. A lot of people don't realize that the Pope is the head of the Vatican City, the sovereign nation on this earth, and so that's why many ambassadors from all the different countries of the world come and visit the Pope. They're not only coming for religious reasons, but also for geopolitical reasons. So I want to get your response to something else he said before we move on, uh, Mike Gendron. The Pope said, uh, by bearing, he's talking about bearing witness each day to the love that has watched over us and lifted us back up. And he said, it is about loving so that they might be happy children of God. And he also said, I see that the Catholic mission is not a proselytizer, but announces the gospel according to the culture of each place. And he said, Catholicism is that, respecting cultures. So here we are. There's no exclusive exclusivity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then, in, Am I interpreting that right? You are. In fact... Catholicism is known for its syncretism. Yes. It takes on the dominant uh, practices of the culture. Yep. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, you know, Mary is not as popular in America as it is down in Central America and South America. And you go down to Haiti and they have voodoo worship going on right outside the Catholic Church. So it's all syncretized with the dominant culture. And that's why the Pope says there's different Gospels for different cultures. But he really needs to read Galatians 1, 6 to 9, because there is only one gospel that has the power to save anyone. And unfortunately, the Pope will one day find out when he stands before his Creator that the gospel that he rejected, the word that the word of God that he rejected is what will condemn him on the last day. Mm-hmm. And Chrislam is another form of that contextualizing the yes. gospel, going to Muslim nations and, and providing that context and, and combining that syncretism between Islam and Christianity. So mm-hmm. it's, it's all just um, very un, unbiblical and ungodly. I'm so glad you brought that up, Mary, because you're right. I, I've talked to evangelicals that have gone through Muslim countries and they're telling us that Muslims are saved because they saw a vision of Jesus. And I'm the first to say that faith comes from hearing, hearing the Word of God, not by seeing visions, mm-hmm. because we know how Satan operates. He mm. can do lying signs and wonders to deceive the world. So I did a message on the convergence of Islam and Roman Catholicism, and you see a lot of convergence going on there. And yes. A lot of people are surprised when I say that Catholicism has more in common with Islam than it does with biblical Christianity. It does. Mike, I think we need to move on for the sake of time. Um, There's another article over at ProclaimingTheGospel.org, The Deception of Padre Pio. Now, a lot of people who were not Catholic or don't have any Catholic family or friends probably have no idea who this man was, but I think people that are fans of The Chosen... Uh, we're introduced to Padre Pio through the lead actor of The Chosen, Jonathan Rumi. Your thoughts about this as um, we're concerned that people are elevating this man as some sort of deity or saint, and just share with us your concerns about the deception of Padre Pio. Yes, I actually had personal experience with Padre Pio. My uncle was a Roman Catholic priest, and we were living in Naples, Italy at the time, and he came to visit and said, let's go over to San Giovanni Rotunda 
and we will meet Padre Pio. And so my uncle actually co-celebrated a mass with Padre Pio, and I got to meet him and see him up front. But he is what's called a stigmatist. He's got the wounds of Christ. I mean, he's he's dead now, but at the time he had the wounds of Christ. And as a young Catholic of 13 years of age, I thought, wow, this is proof and evidence that the Catholic Church is really the one true church. Hmm. But later on, when I was born again and I read his biography, he said that he would sit by his window and souls from purgatory would pass by on their way to heaven thanking Padre Pio for suffering on their behalf. Oh my goodness. So clearly that's another gospel. And uh, as far as how did he get these wounds, uh, no one really knows. Some suggest that he would pour acid on his hands periodically. But in any event, um, Satan can use lying signs and mm-hmm. wonders to deceive, and it could be a work of Satan with his wounds as well. But anyway, um, since I put a blog up on Padre Pio, a lot of Catholics have been very upset, yeah. believing that since he was elevated to sainthood, that the Catholic Church has justifiably named him a saint. If Catholics only knew that once they were born again, they would automatically be a saint of the Most High God, they wouldn't have to wait five years for the Pope to canonize them. But uh, that's the Roman Catholic religion. Um, there is one response, by the way, reading some of the responses to your articles, Mike. Um, I don't want to say it's entertaining because it's not for that reason, but it's, 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 uh, it's very insightful to see where people are coming from and how deeply they believe. Now, they may be sincere in they, their beliefs, but they might be sincerely wrong. I just want to share one uh, comment that someone made and, and defer to your gospel tract, Which Jesus Do You Trust?, with the priest holding up the Eucharist. Uh, she says, this woman, I won't mention her name, she says this, um, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall not enter into my kingdom. Words from Holy Scripture following holy tradition that Protestants ignore and pridefully reject. How do you respond to that? Well, no, we don't ignore that at all. There's quite a lot we could say about that, but that's where the Catholic Church gets its doctrine of transubstantiation. And the problem with this, of course, are many, but when Jesus spoke those words, uh, this was... uh, nearly two years before the crucifixion. So what did people do for the next two years? Did they gnaw on the body of Christ? The Last Supper didn't occur until several years later. But anyway, when you look at the passage, um, the promise for those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus is eternal life. So Catholics would take the first part of that literally, but then they would take the second part of the verse, eternal life, and being raised on the last day as figuratively. Because, as you know, Catholics do not have eternal life. They have conditional life. Catholics never know Mm. if they're going to go to heaven or not, because it's based on what they do Mm. rather than what Christ has done. But if you look at uh, a contrast between the verse you read, John 6.54 and John 6.40, Jesus says in John 6.40, whoever beholds the Son and believes in him has eternal life. 
And then in 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So the only way these two verses can be reconciled together is to take one literally and one figuratively. Because what happens if you eat and drink, but you don't behold and believe? Mm. What happens if you behold and believe, but you don't eat and drink? So clearly, one has to be figurative, one has to be literal. And I hope Catholics would recognize that, that the important part of this message from Jesus is to behold him and believe upon him for eternal life. Amen. Amen. Jesus Jesus is speaking of spiritual nourishment. If you consider the passage, he has just fed the 5,000. So now they follow him across the Sea of Galilee, and they're looking for another free lunch. But Jesus now shifts gears. He's talking about spiritual nourishment and spiritual life. In fact, at the end, we know there's unbelievers in the crowd because Jesus even says that. They departed because the sayings were hard. And whenever Jesus spoke in mixed company, believers and unbelievers, he spoke in figurative language or in parables. And so he even said at the end, the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. And so we have to look at it as spiritual nourishment. That's what Jesus is referring to. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I think a lot of people may not know much about Padre Pio. And I think um, a movie is being produced on his life. And the, the actor who is going to play him, uh, Shia LaBeouf, said he converted to Roman Catholicism while preparing for the role. And I think, uh, boy, another opportunity for this to go mainstream, to come out of Hollywood, to deceive more people. Because as I read um, what Padre Pio thought his legacy was, which was the rosary, playing, praying people out of purgatory, he himself says he offered his life as a victim for sinners. Wow. Um, he also says he has certain spiritual gifts including discernment of spirits, the ability to read hearts, the gift of conversion, seeing angels, and by location, being in two places at once. And I think, you know, know that there's a movie coming out and all these things are happening that way, just to bring this again to my prayers that people are not going to be deceived by this because the, the opportunity for deception on this level with Hollywood and podcasts and all that that, that promote this sort of thing is, is pretty scary to me. It is, and I think we need to do everything we can to keep people from being deceived, and it may mean standing in front of theaters and engaging people as they go in, Mm -hmm. passing out gospel tracts, and we have done that in the past, and we don't know how effective it is, but if we sit back and do nothing, then the devil has a way of deceiving people through this media. Mm -hmm. So, Mike, is it too simplistic to say Jesus during the Last Supper, he held up the elements in, in one, you know, the, the blood of Christ, uh, the, the body of Christ. He held up this bread and this wine in his words, handed physical substances, bread or wine, to the disciples that were with him at the Last Supper. He didn't take his own flesh off or let them drink. So how can this not be symbolic? How did the Catholics come to the conclusion where they teach they, they, that Catholics receive Jesus physically in the stomach, and it's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ that is, quote, substantially contained in the Eucharist? Yeah, and you wonder why they have to continue to receive him. You know, believers receive Jesus once, spiritually in the heart, and then he remains with us. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is always with us. 
He will never leave us or depart from us. But Catholics have to continually receive the Eucharist. And it's really puzzling, but I think, again, it's the power of indoctrination. Um, We've heard of Eucharistic miracles, once again, lying signs and wonders of the devil that draws people to the Eucharist. You know, we have to tell people that when you worship the Eucharist, you're worshiping a false Christ. And it's no different from the Israelites who worship the true God that delivered them out of Egypt in the form of a golden calf. God had 3,000 put to death. He hates idolatry. So for Catholics to worship the Eucharist as the true Christ that's been called down by a sinful priest to represent himself on an altar as a propitiatory sacrifice, that just goes against so many scriptures. Yes. And we just need to warn Roman Catholics that this is a serious sin of idolatry, and you're not only going to die physically from the sin of idolatry, but you're going to die spiritually and eternally if you do not repent and trust in the true Jesus. Uh, Friends, Mike Jenner has an excellent gospel track that you can get at proclaimingthegospel.org. It says at the top, Roman Catholicism, Scripture versus tradition. And Mike, I just want to point out something you say in this, um, a word about motivation, the motivation of Catholics. You say it's important to realize that most of the clergy and lay people that teach Roman Catholic doctrine are not deceiving people with malicious intent. They are simply passing on what was taught to them, believing that it's true. And so there is a perspective that we all need to take as opposed to they're, they're all demonic or they're deceivers on purpose. And no, they, they're well-meaning people. They're basically believing what they have been told. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I have first-hand witness with my uncle, who is a priest. We would sit down with an open Bible and, again, just share Scripture after Scripture with him. And he didn't get angry. He uh, just didn't have any answers for what God was saying that went against his religion. But, again, it's the power of religious indoctrination and religious pride. Uh, The same thing happened to the Jews. They didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah because they were looking for a a ruler that would conquer the Roman Empire. They didn't realize that he was coming twice, once to offer himself as a sacrifice and a substitute for sinners. And so we see religious indoctrination blinding people from the light of the gospel. And the only hope is if you back up one chapter, you'll see in 2 Corinthians 3.16 that the veil of blindness that covers every man's heart remains until they turn to Jesus. So as long as people are looking to their pope or their priest or their rabbi, the veil of blindness remains. But when they turn to Christ and his word and plead with God to show them the truth, then the veil of blindness will be removed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It really is It really is a mission field. I know mm-hmm. uh, in this area of the country, Huge. it was settled by the Germans and, and the Poles and, and, and the Irish Catholics. And so in the same way that in Utah your mission field would be Mormonism, our mission field, no, no less, uh, because of the cultic nature of indoctrination, that's our mission field up here. And I just want to encourage people who are listening, you know, you have your Catholic friends and your Catholic family, um, keep looking for opportunities to share with them what you know and what you've been delivered from. And Mary, I know you've had struggles with your family members, and we have to keep in mind that our mission as 
ambassadors for Christ is to take the message of the gospel from the pages of Scripture to the person's mm-hmm. ear. Mm-hmm. It's God's responsibility to take it mm-hmm. from their ear to the heart. Mm-hmm. And so we yes. know that we can be successful every time we've delivered the message with clarity and c- completeness. And then pray that the Lord would open the heart and they would receive the message with gladness and joy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We bring people to, to Jesus, but God bring we bring Jesus to people, but God brings people to Jesus. Yeah. Right. And I, I love the idea that we plant or water, but God causes the growth. And that's what we need to remember. We uh, we shouldn't be silent. We need we need to talk. We, people believe by hearing the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing the word of God. So back to the beginning, coming full circle to what we opened up with in Galatians chapter 1, Mike. Um, Paul wrote, and this was to early churches, to believers. He was astonished that they so quickly deserted the one who called them to live in the grace of Christ. And they turned to a different gospel, which Paul said is really no gospel at all. And then he said, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he pronounced that curse that if we or even an angel from heaven should preach another one, another gospel, other than what you believed, other than what you heard, other than what we preached to you, Paul says, let them be under God's curse. So wrap this up for us, Mike, in the last three minutes. Well, sure. It's important to recognize that the only other time we see the word anathema, which is the Greek word for curse, occurs in 1 Corinthians 16.22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. So Paul is declaring that love for the true God and the purity of the gospel are of utmost importance. Mm. And so we need to maintain the purity of the gospel. It cannot be altered in any way. And there's two ways people distort the gospel today, either by adding requirements to it, and the Roman Catholic religion is an example of oh, that, boy. as we've shared. Yeah. But also taking away the essentials. And we've also talked about Rick Warren taking away the resurrection, the righteousness of Christ, and the need to repent. And so the gospel is under attack. In fact, I think that's the greatest attack on Christianity today is on the exclusivity and the purity of the gospel, which is why I wrote my book, Contending for the Gospel, because we have this ecumenical movement that is really gathering a lot of people on its ecumenical bandwagon. Over 640,000 evangelicals have now signed the Manhattan Declaration that dare is to say we have a common faith in the gospel with Roman Catholics and Orthodox. Mm. That's the furthest thing from the truth. We're joining hands with people that are under a divine curse, and we need to remain sanctified by the truth. It's also interesting, Mike, um, it was either Barna or some other research that had come out in the last couple of years. I don't remember the numbers, so I'm not going to misquote it, but a large number of people now consider their faith or their spirituality to be religious pluralism, or, or as you said, syncretism. They take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's kind of like the coexist bumper sticker, right? Which is against Christianity, by the way. Right. So, <laughs> Mike Jenrin, uh, thank you so much for your ministry. God bless you, keep you healthy, and uh, we will talk to you again, Lord willing, in the near future. Well, thank you so much for your ministry, too. It was a pleasure to be on with David and Mary today, so thanks for having me, and may God bless the broadcast of this program. Mm, Thank you, Mike. Mike, we'll talk to you next time. All right, guys, I just want to jump ahead on the calendar where you can go to StandUpForTheTruth.com and under the word Upcoming, that is our guest calendar. 
And we just booked David Horowitz. You may know him from Front Page Magazine. Uh, he's one of America's most famous authors and conservative thought leaders. And he's got a book out called Final Battle. We're going to be talking about that coming up on February 16th. On the 14th, we've got Alisa Childers, and you're going to probably want to talk a little bit about Chuck Gerard because her and I did last time we were on, but Mary, you weren't with us. So Alisa Childers, a phenomenal podcast. You want to check that out. Elijah Abraham will actually be in studio in town on uh, February 13th. Next Friday, Pastor Jeff Solwald, Calvary Chapel, Madison, Wisconsin. And Thursday, Don Stewart of Educating Our World. First time on the podcast, as much as that is hard to believe. Next Tuesday, John Haller. And next Monday, we're going there with Scott Shera. Yes, that's right. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in, for sharing the podcast, but especially for your prayers. God bless you, and keep speaking the truth about things that matter.